0: One of the greatest controversies that has ever plagued the Christian church has been over the nature of man after the fall, especially as it pertains to his will, or what some call his free will. This controversy really began when Augustine debated Pelagius in the early 5th century. Pelagius started a public controversy with Augustine after reading from a book called Confessions by Augustine. And in that, he read a prayer that Augustine prayed to God. And in that prayer, Augustine said this, Command what you will, give what you command. Command what you will, give what you command. And this horrified Pelagius. Because it implies that humans cannot obey God unless God gives us that ability to obey him. He commands us to do things that we cannot do unless he gives it. This prayer, according to Pelagius, denied giving to human beings a nature and a will that is capable of obeying God. And so this led Augustine and Pelagius to engage in many written debates where Pelagius ended up denying the doctrine that we know as original sin. Pelagius denied that Adam's sin actually does affect all of mankind. Pelagius believed that we are born morally neutral with a will that is not in sin, a righteous will, a holy will that is capable of following God on its own. Fast forward a thousand years, a little more, fast forward roughly a thousand years to the Protestant Reformation. Luther realized, Martin Luther realized, one of the primary issues that divided the Protestant movement from the Roman Catholic Church was over the nature and will of man. Luther debated the famous Roman Catholic scholar Erasmus over the very issue of what kind of a will that man has because Luther saw that a kind of Pelagianism, a semi-Pelagianism, had creeped into the Roman Catholic Church. And it was in this sort of ongoing debate between Luther and Erasmus that Luther ended up writing what is most likely the most famous book he ever wrote, The Bondage of the Will. Now I give this crash course in church history so that we can see just how important and extensive this debate has been. It is of crucial necessity for us to really nail down the precise nature of mankind after the fall of Adam. And today we have the privilege to hear from one of the most important texts we have in the New Testament, which sheds really valuable light on this issue. You see, what Paul's beginning to do as we continue to work through the book of Ephesians is he wants to now turn. He's, he's spoken of, of the gospel at a very cosmic level, throughout Ephesians chapter 1, right? Uh, Predestination, election, all things happening according to the counsel of his will, the Holy Spirit, and he now wants to get much, much more specific, and he wants to preach the gospel, which which means, literally means good news. He wants to preach the good news to the Ephesians, but in order to preach the good news, you have to first begin with the bad news. And so that's what we have in Ephesians chapter 2 today. We have the bad news that makes the gospel good. Open, if you will, please, to Ephesians chapter 1, or forgive me, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And I will invite you, as you're turning, if you would please stand for the reading of God's word. This bars the reading of God's word. Would you please be seated? The world loves to pretend like mankind is basically generally good. That's, that's the essential message that you'll get from almost any secular movie, especially children's movie, is that we're all just basically good. There are, yes, there are some bad apples. And yes, sometimes good people make bad decisions. But we are all good people. You're born just great. You're so great. The problem is that the Bible teaches a message quite contrary to that. The world tries to teach us that we are born good-hearted people and that we have to actually be taught how to be evil and that it's evil oppressive systems and broken people who train us to become evil. But we were born in purity. But the Apostle Paul paints a very different picture in Ephesians 2, does he not? He reminds his readers in this text of who they were before Christ in their natural condition. And he reminds them of who they used to be. And in these verses, the apostle gives us an unfiltered and honestly quite painful truth. He holds no punches and he minces no words. Man's condition before Christ saves him is not like Disney says it is. It's grim Bleak, and it cannot or should not be sugarcoated. Paul's description of who the Ephesian Christians once were is an important text which establishes a doctrine known as total depravity. That is really what this sermon is about today. It's about the doctrine of total depravity. What is total depravity? What does that doctrine mean? To make it as brief as I can, total depravity addresses how human beings in their natural state are completely enslaved to sin, and that no part of the human person is free from the corruption of sin. Specifically, our text, I think, can tell us three things about how to understand total depravity. There are three things that Paul really focuses on as he talks about the original corruption of human nature before we are saved. The first thing Paul makes very clear is that our corruption is total. Our corruption is total. And this is why the doctrine has come to be known as total depravity. What do we mean by that? We mean that the human constitution, the human person, every part of who you are is in some way, shape, or form corrupted by sin. There's, there's no secret, pure res- re- recess within you. We are affected by sin in every way until the Spirit moves us. And we see this because Paul addresses our entire person in this text and describes it in very negative and sinful terms. There are many ways that the Bible will break human beings up. Um, Sometimes it's just body, soul. Sometimes it's body, soul, spirit. Jesus goes so far to tell us that you have to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. So we can break the human being up sort of into different pieces and it doesn't always look the same, but usually they're all getting at the same kinds of divisions. And in our text, Paul breaks the human being up into three parts, spirit, body, and mind. Spirit, body, and mind. And Paul says that all three of those Aspects of who we are have been affected by sin. Let us see how Paul describes our spirits as being affected by sin. Look at what he says in verses 1 and the beginning of verse 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work and the sons of disobedience. Paul describes the natural man as being dead. You are dead. Now, how are we to understand this? Clearly, this is a metaphor, right? It's not like you were physically, literally dead before Christ saved you. You were a human being. You were alive. You were walking around, going to buy groceries. So, obviously, this is some kind of metaphor. And we know that he is specifically talking about a kind of spiritual death Because specifically, what is it that has killed us in this text? It is in or through trespasses and sins. It is through sin that you've been killed. You are dead in some way, shape, or form because of sin. Sin has killed you. And we know this is not physical. And so this is why theologians have universally understood this as a spiritual death. You are, before Christ saves you, you are spiritually dead. Jesus uses this analogy, he himself, he uses it in John chapter 5, 25. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Jesus describes conversion and salvation as a spiritual resurrection. Dead, hearing, and coming to life. Paul describes the natural man as spiritually dead. In this spiritual death, we see, according to Paul, means that we are morally corrupt and spiritually helpless being far from God. We are corrupted morally, so we live and walk according to the ways of the world. We live out sin. We're spiritually helpless. Dead people don't make themselves breathe. Dead people need other people to come and save them. When you're dead, you're helpless. You can't do anything. So spiritually, you have no ability to do anything spiritually good. You're dead. Your spirits are dead and your life is characterized by sin. And that's why he goes on to even say that in which, verse 2, these trespasses and sins that we are dead in, these are the things, verse 2, in which you once walked. This is a common Hebrew expression, walking, to, to, to uh, sort of serve as a metaphor for your entire way of life. To walk is a description of habit. So when he says that you walk in sin, what is he saying? He's not saying that you're, just, you're a really good person and every now and then you make bad choices. Or what I always hear on TV shows. Yeah, you made a couple bad choices, but they don't define you. Yes, they do. Yes, they do. Before Christ, yes, they do. And because the picture here is not that you're just this really good person who occasionally makes a bad choice. Your whole life, your entire habit is sin. You are just walking in it. You are spiritually dead and you do nothing but sin. That's who you were before Christ saved you. As a matter of fact, it's so severe that he even goes on in verse 2 at the very end of it to describe us before Christ saves us as being sons and daughters of disobedience. Your parents is sin. You are generated from sin. You come from sin. You're a child of disobedience itself. That's how all-inclusive our sinfulness is before Christ saves us. We are spiritually dead, walking in sin. We are children of disobedience. You see how our spirits are entirely dead and corrupted? Another way that Paul teaches that our souls are corrupted is by specifically highlighting the influence Satan has over us. This is really scary stuff. Look at verse 2. In which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. According to Paul, in our natural state, we follow the course of the world. We follow worldliness. By the way, this is a fun little side note. This is why I have oftentimes said from the pulpit that Christians really should not believe that there's any such thing as an a-religious person. That there's really any such thing as a non-religious person. Everybody is religious. Here, Paul gives us a very... Two very basic categories. There is a course, there is a religious path that you are going to follow. It's not whether, it's which. You're either going to follow God's course of life, God's way of life, or you're going to follow the world's course, the world's way of life. But no one is sort of atomized. We are following something. We have some co- course, what, what, what later theologians have referred to, use the term as worldview. Everyone has some kind of worldview that is They are following and that influences what they think and how they behave. You see, everyone you meet, every person you meet, is a deeply religious person. The question is, is what religion are they following? What course are they following? Who's guiding their steps? Paul says that before Christ comes, we are following the course Of the world, we're following the system of the world. And not just that, not only is it true that every single person is following the some course. Paul even goes to say that another inescapable reality is that you'll be spirit-filled. You're going to follow some course, and there will be a spirit guiding you along that course. Every person you ever meet is spirit-filled. The question is not whether you will be spirit-filled or not. The question is which spirit. You're going to have a spirit. Because notice we know that Christians are led by the Holy Spirit. That's why when you hear spirit-filled, it's usually in a Christian context. But Paul talks about being spirit-filled in this text, but he's not talking about the Holy Spirit. Verse 2 in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Before you came to Christ, there was a spirit who was at work in you, and you were following him. See, you were spirit-filled before you came to Christ. It just was the wrong spirit. So you probably asking the question, what spirit is this? Paul doesn't name this thing by name. He says he's the prince of the power of the air. What does that mean? Well, here, Paul is referencing Satan. He's referencing, uh, maybe the way our kids might refer to him as the devil. In your natural state, the devil is your lord. The devil is a prince, he has a high authority, and you are a subject underneath his authority. You live in his kingdom, you are his servant, and you are under his domain, and you are following him, your prince. It specifically calls him the prince of the power of the air. And it's really elevating Satan above the rest of his demons. You see, what's happening here is the powers of the air are just all the demonic forces that are at work in the world, and Satan rules over them. And you're underneath that chain prior to Christ. You are following the powers of the air, ultimately then following the prince of the powers of the air, Satan himself. And that word air is an interesting metaphor. It's, it's scary. He's trying to bring the unseen realm, the spiritual realm, and remind us of how close it is to us. Satan is not far from you. That's why Peter has to tell his people in one of his epistles to be watchful for Satan is a hungry lion seeking to devour you. The the demonic realm, the evil forces, that be, they're here. Paul metaphorically says it's, it's like they're in the air. And they have a kind of rule, a kind of power, and Satan rules over them. And before we come to Christ, we submit to them. We are slaves to them. We follow them. By the way, don't let it bother you that Paul would take the devil and give him sort of this kind of high authority. Like, doesn't it kind of feel weird to speak of someone so evil and talk about him as being a prince, as having authority? This is common language in Scripture. Very, very common. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires, John eight forty four. Satan, before you come to Christ, you are not a child of God. You're a child of Satan. He's your dad. He's your father. And your disposition is to carry out his desires. He's your father. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. John 12 31. Jesus speaks of Satan as having dominion over the earth and Jesus through his death, burial, resurrection and ascension is in a progressive state of throwing the ruler of this age out. But Jesus has no problem saying Satan is the ruler of the world. But then he promises to come and take that authority back. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4. He's literally called small g God. He's the ruler of this age, the God of this world. And he has a very real and active force and authority over the sons of disobedience. He is at work in them. And so we see how deeply corrupted our spirits are. Our very souls are dead and enslaved to Satan. That's who we are before Christ saves us. But he doesn't just leave it with our spirits. He goes on to talk about the corruption of our mind and our bodies as well. Read verse 3 with me. Among whom we all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. He says that all of us before we were saved were carrying out the passions of the flesh. Now we have to ask... What does that mean, the flesh? Because you see, in Scripture, flesh usually means one of two things. It's either a very literal word and it's just describing like just your physical body. Um, And usually in the context of that, it's saying something along the lines of how Jesus was a Jew according to the flesh. Right? It just, or or Paul says in Romans 9 how much he loves his kinsmen according to the flesh. He's just talking about their, their DNA, their skin color, right? But most of the time, when the Bible uses the word flesh, it serves as what we call a synecdoche, which is where a small part represents the whole. It's a synecdoche for the whole human being. The flesh is not just your physical body. It includes your soul and your mind as well. And we know that that's how Paul's using it here because he actually breaks it down for us. He says, before Christ, you you, you lived in the passions of our flesh. What does that mean? It means you carried out the desires of both your body and your mind. Your body is corrupt and you're living in those corrupt bodily passions. This is why we see humankind struggle so much with what we might refer to as physical passions. Among them, the chief among them in Scripture and in reality is sexual sins, sexual perversions. Our bodies have broken, degenerate sexual desires. But bodily passions would probably also include things like anger and jealousy these physical feelings that you physically feel that you have to fight against those are the brokenness of your body our bodies are broken and distorted by sin but Paul also describes as carrying out the desires of our minds this uh, we call this another you're learning a lot of vocab words today total depravity here's another one the noetic effects of sin noetic The noetic effects of sin talk about how sin has even affected our minds. It affects our ability to think, our reasoning processes. The reason that this became so important is because one of the more ancient heresies that has existed in the church is there have been lots of different groups, both in the church and outside the church, that have tried to argue that, yeah, physically we're corrupt. Like we have these corrupted bodies, these broken bodies, these physical passions, but our minds are pure. And that's why we can find the truth and reason to the truth and overcome our bodies. Like, so your, your mind is, is pure. Your mind is not sinful, but your bodies are sinful. Your desires are sinful. But Paul here is very clear. Even your mind, even your reasoning faculties have been affected and marred by sin. This is why so, some of the world's most brilliant people, in their fields they are so brilliant, yet... They can't see that Christianity is true. How can they be so smart in this area and not see the patently obvious truth of Christianity? Because they're not smart in this area because their minds have been affected by sin. Paul tells us this elsewhere. In Romans chapter 1, he talks about how in our rebellion, we became futile in our thinking. We are, to put it harshly, spiritual morons. Before Christ saves us. So, what does Paul say? We are totally corrupted. We are totally depraved. And that word total means your mind, your body, and your spirit have all been corrupted by sin. Our corruption is total. But we learn a second thing. We learn from Paul that our corruption is universal. It's universal. Not only does it affect the whole person, but it affects every person. It doesn't just affect the whole person, it affects every person. In other words, what we're talking about right now is not a special class of people. Just one group, ancient group. These people were really, really wicked, but the rest of us, we're were okay. We're talking about a universal reality here, something that affects every human being. Look at verse 3. Paul emphasizes this twice in verse 3. He begins... Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. You see at the beginning how he lumps everybody in? I'm not just talking about you Ephesians. We all were like this. And at the end, he lumps us all in again. You were like this. Why? Because all of mankind is like this. Paul is very, very clear to say that these sinful effects are universal. Now, why would Paul want to be so adamant about this? Well, because as we preach through this sermon series, passage by passage, it can become difficult to keep in mind the larger context of the book that we just talked about in our first sermon. And remember, one of the most important themes throughout the whole book is Paul is trying to make sure that the Gentile Christians know that they are not second-class Christians to the Jewish Christians. That's going to become a huge theme throughout this book, that you are, you Gentile believers are on, a, on the same level as the Jewish ones. The Jewish people are no longer this special class of chosen people by God, and you're kind of the afterthought. Like, you are equal. And can you imagine how that that process would be entirely overthrown Is if as Paul is sitting here talking about these Ephesian Christians and how wicked they used to be and how they used to be basically slaves of Satan and fallen, how the Jewish person can think, yeah, those Gentiles, man, I'm telling you. Pretty bad. And so Paul wants to remind the Ephesians, even though I'm talking to you right now, I'm not just talking about you. This is not an Ephesian problem. This is not even a Gentile problem. This is a human problem. You see, what's amazing about biblical truth is that in Christ, we like to talk about how we're all made equal, right? Galatians chapter 3, in Christ, there's no slave or free, male or female, you know, Jew or Gentile. Christ levels the playing field. But in a very real sense, the playing field is leveled not just in Christ, it's leveled outside of Christ too. At the end of the day, any worldly distinctions we want to make between each other are sort of null and void when you read Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 and realize this describes all of us. We we were all dead in sins, slave to Satan, living in the passions of our corrupt minds and corrupt bodily affections. Paul wants to level the playing field just as he does in the book of Romans chapter 3 when he says, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. No, not even one. Do you hear? He wants you to see this is not a Gentile problem. This is a human problem. Nobody is free from total depravity. But this, that leads us, that's a good transition to our final point. How is this possible? But think about it this way. What are the odds? There are almost 7 billion people on the planet today. And billions of people have come before us. What are the odds that every single person would end up becoming such a sinner? Right? Don't statistically, shouldn't we just assume there was going to be at least a handful of people who didn't fall into such sin? Who didn't live their lives like this? What are the odds? What if seven billion people all won the lottery every single year? When do you think something's going on here? How is this so universal? Well, that's because it leads to our third point, which is that our corruption is innate. Our corruption is innate. It's total, it's universal, and it's innate. What does it mean when we describe something as being innate? It means it's natural to you at birth, actually natural to you at conception. Innate instincts are just part of who you are. It means that sin is not something you learn, it's not something you develop, it's with you at birth, it's, it's part of who you are. And Paul implies here that this fallen condition is not something that we eventually stumble into during our lives. Like we're born morally neutral or maybe even righteous and then at some point we all just inevitably become sinful. Paul is telling us that this is our condition from the moment we exist. Where do I get that from? Read verse 3 with me. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. That expression, children of wrath, what it essentially means is that you deserve the wrath of God. And we know that because the Bible in the Old Testament utilizes this phrase in this way a lot. So for example, we have examples in the Old Testament where God prophesies um, someone is going to die and the Old Testament text will describe that person as being a son of death. Or the Bible might talk about how someone deserves government punishment, capital punishment, and then the Old Testament will describe those people as being sons of lashes. When it talks about we are children of wrath, it means we deserve wrath. It means if God were to judge us, we would be deserving of it. You deserve God's wrath. What does that imply? It means you're sinful and corrupt and you're against God. You deserve His wrath. Now the question is, when did you become deserving of the wrath of God? At what point in time did God decide you deserve to be judged by me? And Paul says it didn't happen throughout your life in time. You deserve wrath according to your very nature. By nature, we were children of wrath. Human beings after Adam simply deserve the judgment of God because of who they are. We are innately corrupted. Corrupted. This is exactly what King David said in Psalm 51.5 when he said, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. David said he was a sinner from the moment of his conception. His very nature made him a child of wrath. A simpler way to think about this, I like to phrase it like this. There's this question, and we have to, which, which one do we get right? Which one comes first? The chicken or the egg kind of a question, Right? Are you a sinner because you sin or do you sin because you're a sinner? right, what comes first? And Paul gives us the answer here. You are not a sinner because you sin. You sin because you're a sinner. That's what Paul is saying when he says that you are by nature a child of wrath. You were not born perfect and then you sinned and so now you're a sinner. You were born a sinner and so then you sin. You are not a sinner because you sin. You sin because you're a sinner. Committing acts of sin didn't make you this way. You were this way by nature. Now, how can this be? Can we just be honest with ourselves? This is kind of hard to believe. This is kind of hard to agree with. In order to grasp this concept, we really have to understand a very crucial doctrine the very doctrine that Augustine debated with Pelagius, original sin. So there's your three vocab words today, total depravity, the noetic effects of sin, and original sin. We need to at least be introduced, if you will, to this concept of original sin. Original sin is essentially stating that Adam fell in our place. Adam, when he fell, He corrupted his human nature. Sin, when he sinned, it ruined his body, it ruined his soul, it ruined his mind, it ruined his whole constitution. And then guess what? He passed that on. Right? Parents pass on their nature to children. Right? You're you're never going to give birth to a horse. It's not going to happen. You're not ever going to give birth to a puppy. You're going to give birth to a human. You're going to pass on what you are. And Adam is a broken, fallen sinner. And so every person who's a child of Adam inherits his brokenness, his fallenness. Original sin means that Adam corrupted the human race and passed that on. And by the way, this is why Christmas is so important. This is why the virgin birth is so important. This is why the kind of modern liberal ideas that the virgin birth didn't happen ruin the gospel. If the virgin birth didn't happen, Jesus is a son of Adam. And that makes him accountable for Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. Unless you were virgin born, you received Adam's seed, which makes you broken and fallen and corrupt. He has passed on his broken humanity to us. But additionally, he didn't just pass on a broken—he uh, didn't just pass on a broken nature to us. His actual legal status of being guilty under the law was passed to his children. The Bible teaches that Adam is the covenant representative of all of his children. So as long as Adam was in that broken covenant state, all his children are born into that broken covenant state. So you are not only born with a corrupt nature, nature you are born guilty of sinning against God because you fell in Adam. Keep your marker here. Turn to Romans chapter 5. There's a lot in Romans 5 that we will not have time to get to today. Time is moving very fast for me right now but I just at least want you to see this. This isn't just the musings of your pastor with too much time on his hands during the week. Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man... Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through the righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Again, long passage, a lot there. Here's all we can emphasize with our time today. Do you notice how, number one, crystal clear, Paul is here, that it was Adam's single sin that brought death and sin and condemnation to all men. Right? This is not my idea. This is Paul's idea. We are in Adam and therefore we inherit his corruption, his condemnation, and his sin. From the moment of your conception, you're Adam. You're a sinner. You're guilty. You're corrupt. And notice this important connection that then the sin of Adam connects to the gospel, to the new Adam, to the better Adam, to the true Adam, Jesus Christ. Paul's whole point is he's comparing the two in the same way that being in Adam means I inherit all that Adam can give me. Death, corruption, sin, condemnation. Now that sets the stage for if you believe in Christ, if you switch from being under Adam's headship and you come under Christ's headship, guess what? You're going to inherit that all he has to give you, which is what? Righteousness, life, forgiveness, Holiness. You see, if you don't like the doctrine of original sin, you won't like the gospel. If you sit and complain, it's not fair that Adam condemned me, that's fine, but then guess what you have to live with? It's also not fair that Christ can redeem you. If Adam doesn't get to condemn you, Christ doesn't get to redeem you. You need to go earn your own redemption. Good luck. There are two human covenant heads, Adam and Christ. And until you are in Christ, you are in Adam, which means you receive all that Adam can give you. And it's nothing but a corrupt and guilty nature. And this is why, back in Ephesians 2, Paul reminds us that all human beings are sons of Adam, and they are therefore broken, sinful, and deserving of God's wrath. They are children of wrath by nature. Our corruption is innate. Now, we have to conclude with this because here's where all this controversy eventually leads to. It leads to the discussion throughout church history has been, okay, I can maybe agree with that. Okay, I see where you've gone in the text. But what do I do with this notion of free will then? This has affected human beings so much we can't really just buy into the pop notion of free will now, can we? Because Ephesians 2 teaches that we are totally depraved. Soul, mind, and body. And this is why all throughout church history, this has primarily been the issue that's been debated. And this is why Calvinists have historically been thought of those weird, crazy Christians who deny the notion of free will. And the reason we have done that is because to us, the scriptures don't speak of man as having a free will, but a broken and corrupted will. After reading Ephesians 2, can we in good conscience look at those in the flesh and call their wills free? In what sense can our will be spoken of as being free when Paul says it's dead? In what sense can we speak of our wills being free when Paul says we're enslaved to Satan? Is death compatible with freedom? Is slavery compatible with freedom? Certainly not. Our natures cannot be free if we are by nature children of wrath and sons of disobedience. It seems clear then that however we understand human will, it's not totally free. It's dead, enslaved, and corrupted. And this is why Luther titled his book, The Bondage of the Will. Because he was protesting against Erasmus' vision of the freedom of the will. And Luther responded, our wills are not free, they are enslaved. And he provided a clear biblical position that while we are in the flesh, our wills are in bondage not freedom. If you don't believe me, if you don't believe Luther, believe Jesus who says in John 6, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. Unless God does something in you, you can't come to Christ. Does that sound like freedom or brokenness? Does that sound like freedom or an inability? And if you're still not convinced, I know we're pushing it here, but just, I want you to read this. Turn to Romans chapter 8. I should have just had you stay in Romans. Romans chapter 8, look at verses 7 through 8. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Again, I have to ask you rhetorically, does that sound like free will? Now, to be clear, the discussion of man's will is incredibly complicated. It's very nuanced and very complicated. I'm not trying to say that our position at this church is that human beings, God forces them to do things like puppets or that they're not responsible for any of their actions. I'm not trying to say any of those things. All we're trying to do is say that this common, simplistic notion of free will that pervades so much of Christianity, it just simply isn't biblical. Men are not capable of coming to God in faith unless God grants them that ability. As Augustine said, give what you command. We have a will, but it's corrupted, it's dead, it's enslaved, it isn't free. Now, this might sound like bad news to you. And certainly, the doctrine of total depravity is bad news to you. It's bad news to all of us. But what I mean specifically is me sort of coming in here and taking away your free will, that, that bothers people. That sounds like bad news to people. They, they think I've stolen something precious from them. But there's really another way to look at this. And Martin Luther, I think, expressed it perfectly In the bondage of the will, let's end with this. Here's why you might actually want to rejoice in this. Luther says, I frankly confess that for myself, even if it could be, I don't want free will to be given to me, nor anything to be left in my own hands to enable me to endeavor after salvation not merely because in the face of so many dangers and adversities and the assaults of the devil, I could not stand my ground, but because even if there were no dangers, I should still be forced to labor with no guarantee of success but now that God has taken my salvation out of the control of my own will and put it under the control of His and promised to save me not according to my working or running but according to His own grace and mercy I have the comfortable certainty that He is faithful and will not lie to me and that He is also great and powerful so that no devils or opposition can break Him or pluck me from His hand.